2: Today we are talking about the thinker Hannah Arendt, um, and why are we talking about the thinker Hannah Arendt? Well, well, I mean, she's having a moment. She she's had many moments uh, in during her days in life and after her death. Um, her 1951 book, *The Origins of Totalitarianism*, to, to, I should be able to say it. Totalitarianism was selling uh, at six times its normal rate in December. I can't think why that would be. In, by January, the same book had sold out uh, on Amazon completely. Uh, the online blog Jezebel referred to this as extremely metal. That's a good thing, extremely metal. Um, lots of people are citing her in their work. When we had Brooke Gladstone on talking about her book, she cites uh, Arendt extensively uh, in her book. Masha Gessen, uh, recently writing in the New York a Review of Books, also uses uh, Arendt's work as a way of talking about, well, I mean, it's it's almost inevitably here in the United States in the context of how you deal with the regime of Donald Trump. Um, she's also just being added to a lot of uh, course curricula. She's uh, if you look around the United States and if you look in the United Kingdom, suddenly Hannah Arendt, not that if she ever stops being taught, but she's probably being taught a little bit more right now. So we've gathered. And the other great thing about Arendt is because her work is so um I mean, really, the origins of totalitarianism, scholars are still kind of unpacking it still, you know, uh, what, 68 years later. Uh, and uh, so there's a lot of people who study our right? And so it was, uh, we were able to uh, have our pick, basically, of uh, all kinds of interesting people, including George Prochnik, who's been on the show before for his book about silence. He's a writer, editor at large for Cabinet Magazine and the author of several books, most recently Stranger in a Strange Land, Searching for Gershom Sholem and Jerusalem. The New York Times editor's choice. Uh, also joining us, Roger Berkowitz, founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center and associate professor of politics, philosophy, and human rights at Bard College. He is the author of Thinking in Dark Times, Hannah Arendt on Ethics and Politics. He's currently writing a book with Peter Baer on totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt in Her Time and Ours. Also with us, Kathleen Jones, Professor Emerita of Political Theory and Women's Studies at San Diego University, and also the author of several books, including, most recently, Diving for Pearls, A Thinking Journey with Hannah Arendt. She directs a National Endowment for the Humanities summer seminar uh, for school teachers on Hannah Arendt. And then later in the show, one of the things that occurred to us is that there are, because Hannah Arendt, well, actually, I think we need to talk about why this is the case, but Hannah Arendt, more than your typical thinker, has been dramatized and performed. We actually did get in touch with Barbara Sukawa, uh, the great actress who played her in a feature film. I uh, got kind of a biopic as they say about Hannah Arendt uh, and uh, titled with the same. it's eponymously titled, I guess you would say. Uh, and uh, we've all we're, but what we're going to do today is talk to Melissa Friedman who played Hannah Arendt in the off-broadway production of Kate Fodor's Hannah and Martin. That is the story of the relationship between Hannah Arendt and Martin Heidegger, which we will be digging into. Uh Anyway, Melissa will be joining us later. We we want to get started uh, right now, and we want me to stop blathering. Um, So, um, uh, Kathleen Jones, I'm going to have you start us off. I, you know, I'm going to kind of ask you each. This may seem like kind of a silly question, but one of the things that emerged to me getting ready for this show is it's not even – Uh, There there doesn't seem to be consensus on in what discipline to to place the work of Hannah Arendt. She is variously described uh, as a philosopher, a political philosopher, a political scientist, a journalist. She at one point, I think, described herself as primarily a storyteller. So, I mean, uh, Kathleen Jones, when you have to explain just bedrock, who is this person? What do you say?
3: Well, I say that uh, according to her own description, she called herself a political theorist and not a philosopher and insisted upon this because she thought that philosophy had been a worldless way of understanding things, and she was interested in a worldly approach to uh, the human condition.
2: You know, uh, that's a great uh, place to start, too, R- Roger Berkowitz. This does seem incredibly important to her. And maybe one reason that some people want to call her a journalist is she's she's uh, obviously um, an, an admirer uh, of the ancient Greek philosophers, and, and I think specifically an admirer of the, the notion of Socrates uh, as a person who gets out in public and rubs elbows and shoulders with other people and, and who absorbs the public life uh, of his time. So that notion that she would go and cover Eichmann's trial, which, I mean, philosophers uh, typically don't go and cover things. But that sort of fits with, I think, what, what Kathy's saying about this notion of, of being active.
1: Yes, I think very much so. I mean, she she was, she's not a philosopher, although she was, as she describes herself in letters, I think, to Gershom Scholem, she was, uh, her, she comes out of the world of, of German philosophy. Um, but she's someone who takes that learning of philosophy and poetry and, 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 and really the, the intellectual tradition of the West and, and, and brings it to bear on, on the world. Um, she, she does, in one interview, call herself a political theorist. Um, I like to think of her as a political thinker. Uh, she, she's not a theorist. In fact, she's very uh, skeptical of theory and the way that theory takes you away from reality. So she... What I think is special about what Hannah Arendt does is she thinks deeply about the world uh, with the background of the intellectual tradition uh, helping her, but always in um, new and original ways, which is why really whenever a problem happens in the world, whether it's the revolutions in the Arab Spring or educational crises or now rising populism and authoritarianism, people turn to her, not because she's always right, but because she thinks about things in a way that is new and different and, and really is surprising and uh, provides new new insights uh, into what's going on in the world.
2: Um, George Prochnik, I think one of the other things that leaps out uh, about her is courage, right? She's unflinching in what she wants to say. She often says things that she knows will get her in trouble, but she does it anyway.
4: Right. I, I mean, I've, I've always been very compelled by the sense of Arendt's extravagant fearlessness. She was so antagonistic to the idea that privilege either genetic or socioeconomic or even realized through one's own personal achievement should confer upon any individual politi- a preferred political position some kind of prerogative that didn't fit with the collective that didn't that didn't mesh with the necessity of identifying your political fate with a larger human community she she takes this position, obviously, in r- with respect to the Eichmann trial in various ways. But even earlier, um, in, in a remarkable uh, critique that she wrote of Stefan Zweig, she talked about all the ways in which he and a number of his peers, celebrity artists, had made the mistake of believing that because they could succeed and enter some kind of international elite, that in some way their fate would be segregated from that of the larger Jewish collective, and was privileged. So there's, there's that fearlessness, and there's also her willingness um, to be contradictory, even of herself. And I, I remember reading the anic- an anecdote in which her niece, very late in Hannah Arendt's life, was watching Hannah Arendt uh, boarding a train to go visit Martin Heidegger. And she says to Hannah Arendt, more or less, really, is, is this what you're going to do? Is this necessary? And Hannah Arendt's reply was, some things are stronger than a human being. Hmm. And there's a kind of majesty in that acknowledgement of human passions that goes with the brio in her writing, which is so um, enormously charismatic.
2: It, you know, um, Kathy, one thing that we associate um, uh, Arendt with is a critique of uh, of moral political failure. In fact, that is the thing that we most prominently associate her with are these autopsies she does of totalitarianism, of the Nazi movement, of Stalinism. Um, on the other hand, and maybe one of the things that gets overlooked is that she had a very clear vision uh, about what a healthy state is and, and what a good society is. And it's, once again, very much influenced by Socrates, by Aristotle, by the ideas of Pericles expressed in Thucydides and, and, and in Herodotus. Herodotus gives her uh, this term she likes, uh, isonomia, the human capacity to identify. Identify something as fair or unfair. Um, she believed in consent and dissent. Maybe you can say a little bit more about this. What, what does what does Hannah Arendt think a good world looks like?
3: Well, it's not something that you can really put formulaically. It's a world, though, where uh, people are acting and speaking in public. It's a world that has enabled a space for gathering people together to act in concert with others. So for example in the uh, origins of totalitarianism she worries about the loss of the public world uh, under a regime of totalitarianism where people are bound together so tightly in uh, uh, what she calls metaphorically a band of iron that there is no space between them. But she also mourns the loss uh, of a a real sense of privacy uh, under totalitarianism. And so for her, there needs to be both a public space of appearances where we can act and speak with others and be heard and listened to, uh, but there also is the important necessity for a private space. So this whole concept of being at home in the world means having both the public and private spheres, uh, in a sense, uh, protected from excessive invasion or uh, erasure, uh, one way or another. And uh, in in terms of a much more specifically political project, I suppose, if you want to think in terms of uh, forms of of government, I mean, she really is a, uh, a... very strongly in the Republican tradition with a little R. In other words, uh, local fields of action uh, very much interested in the, in, in the ways that people can uh, act and resist under circumstances when the chips are down. Uh, and, and, and that ties in with what she saw in many ways as, and, and called in the Eichmann in Jerusalem book uh, the totality of moral collapse that had been accomplished under the Nazi bureaucratic state. So that these these opportunities to really effectively resist, or even uh, have what might be considered an impractical resistance, be able to uh, continue to appear and and, uh, and be known.
2: Um, you know, Roger, do you want to say a little bit more about this? I, I want us to, we're going to have to plunge into the heart of darkness, the, the places where Arendt saw um, societies falling apart, descending into totalian, total I can't say this word today totalitarianism, I, on a good day, I can say it. Uh, totalitarianism and into incredible acts of brutality. But I mean, before we go there, I think it's uh, worth while taking one last glimpse over our shoulders at the sunlight. Yeah. Arendt had a vision for a functioning society.
1: Yes, I mean I you know uh I don't know she she never outlay she never outlined up you know here's my utopia I don't think she thought that way she was she was not someone who thought that you could sort of say here's what we should do and we'll reach it reality is always more complicated than theory um but but you know she wrote a book on revolution um in which she very much held up the idea of the American constitutional tradition as as uh well, as one of the great uh, uh, the great traditions of politics in the world, and she argues that that what the, the the real achievement of what the American founders did was develop a new concept of political power, um, and it was the idea that you could have power, and this is, reflects what Kathy was saying about local power is what she understands as people acting in concert together, and that means that people have to feel empowered to act because if they feel they like they're caught in a bureaucracy or in some sort of a big uh, violent government. They're, they're not empowered to act. So there has to be local enough power that people feel empowered to act. And th- there, and as a result, there has to be what she calls no sovereignty. There has to be no, um, you know, one power that over <laughs> that o- that overruns all the other powers. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but so she she said that what America developed what the founders developed was an idea of of of, of power without sovereignty government without sovereignty and, and and this was a federalist republican in the r small r republican tradition where you would have not only the separation of powers that we often learn about in school between the three federal the three you know the president the executive the legislative, and the judiciary, but more importantly for her um widely dispersed power centers around the country, townships, uh, local counties, states, and all of which could become power centers that when uh, other power centers got too strong and might become uh, sovereign or dictatorial, they would rise up and, and, and contest them. And it was this contest of powers um, that for her was the, was the only political way to secure freedom and also allow power to exist, and she thought power was absolutely essential. So against, just one last thing, against those who would argue that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, she would agree that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but she doesn't think power corrupts. She thinks power is at the very essence of human freedom, and what she thought the Americans had started to found um, was an idea that would allow for power without allowing for absolute power.
2: Yeah, I think at one point she did use the phrase the lost treasure of the American Revolution. Well, she
1: thinks that that system fell apart. She yeah. thought there was a treasure there and that as the country became more centralized and bureaucratic uh, in the 19th and then 20th centuries, she thought that treasure was lost.
2: So, George Prochnik, now now I think uh, we, we're leaving the sunny slopes uh, of happy functioning societies and going to where things get uh, totally darker. But, I mean, as we do that, we uh, once again invoke some of Arendt's ideas. And one of her ideas, as s- sketched out a little bit by Kathy and Roger, is this notion of human bonds. She believes that when people become atomized, uh, when their social bonds from each other deteriorate and they begin to exist more and more as individual units— Uh, They are what more conquerable? Is that fair?
4: They're certainly going to be more susceptible to the sorts of intense bombardment of propaganda and the different echo chambers um, that we are immersed in today with with social media and digital sites. Um, I I would agree. I would agree with everything that Roger and Kathy was saying, and and point to. The, the more hopeful experiments that are happening in, in a very limited number of places today, with di- direct democracy, for example, some anarchist ideas that seem to pick up on that possibility of, of, a, of a very, very focused local governance. Um, and in terms of, in terms of the larger problem of this moment, this, this atomization, you know, I one of the one of the points that I tried to make in the essay about Sholem and Iran was that. Scholem's concern with her tone in the Eichmann in, in Eichmann in Jerusalem book was a concern with the dangers of what we would today call snarkiness, of, of flippancy, of humor that might function um, maybe more as a palliative than as some genuinely uh, subversive tool against power. And I think that what he was arguing for, in fact, was uh, an an extreme solidarity with those suffering the abuses of power, um, with with some kind of effort to not just identify with but to articulate the the consequences and 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 anguishes of of individuals who um, were on the receiving end of the cruel power that that existed in in, in Nazi Germany, um, and I think there's room for thinking in our own uh, journalistic moment about what it would be like to open up a newspaper or look on a site that was filled with stories, not just of individual suffering, not just compelling narratives of, of people who were um, subjected to this regime's abuses, but also stories about more progressive um, experiments in, in countering some of the forces of the regime and giving minimal uh, airspace to Trump himself, because I I think apart from the problem of identifying a consistent ideology in Trump, what's clear is that he is some kind of monster of self-regard. And in this way, I think he does um, have affinities with with Eichmann, one of the most striking images of Eichmann, I thought, in a a recent book, Eichmann Before Jerusalem, by um, Bettina Stengnath, was of Eichmann methodically collecting all the press cuttings that mention his name in relationship to the Jews, whether these are positive or negative, and and viewing this project simply of his centrality to the debate about the Jewish question as proof of his own semi-deified status. So how do we suck the, the air out of this moment, out of the... Um, wicked behavior that this administration sometimes uh, is certainly guilty of. And I think part of it, and it's, it's difficult, but would involve um, simply taking him out of the spotlight and trying to give a new amplified voice to uh, populations that have been disenfranchised by his uh, policies and behaviors.
2: Although in some ways we still, I think, have to fully diagnose the problem. Not everybody in this society maybe agrees with the diagnosis. But you know, I mean, uh, Kathy, as George is talking, I'm I'm thinking also that just in preparing for this show, I kept having essentially the same aversue that 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 Donald Trump. Now that we've opened the Pandora's box that has a big T on it, um, that Donald Trump, you know, does rather than reminding me of, of one of the leaders. The kind of charismatic leaders that Arendt writes about, uh, he reminds me a little bit of Eichmann, at least in that sense. Arendt seems very concerned with the notion of. Thoughtlessness, not like thoughtlessness, like you forgot to buy your wife flowers for her birthday, but people who can't think, people who can't do, you know, that sort of Socratic two in one where, you know, there's one part of you is saying, well, maybe I should do this. And then there's another part of you saying, well, no, if you can't do that, you have to do this other thing that that she sees that in Eichmann. And and I see that in Donald Trump. I don't sense that kind of inner dialogue that we call moral reflection.
3: Well, I definitely agree with that, but the danger of just analogizing Trump to Eichmann is that we can't forget the position that he holds, which isn't quite the position that Eichmann held. And the thinking that she's talking about is uh, a thinking where you you have not where you let the imagination go visiting. You haven't only your point of view in that regard. I agree that, that Trump's self-aggrandizing and his concern with whatever enhances his own reputation uh, to the exclusion of everything else represents the kind of thoughtlessness that she characterized of, of Eichmann and uh, and the kind of self-aggrandizing that you read through the pages of Eichmann in Jerusalem, which I'm currently in the process of reading uh, with the people in my centre. And it comes across very clearly there. Uh, his thoughtlessness uh, or Trump's thoughtlessness uh, is is particularly dangerous because of the position that he holds. But I think it's important to attach Trumps to this notion that he also. Uh, continues to uh, to trumpet, if I can use that for a second, and that is that he is the leader of a movement. He, he continues to appeal to his base in rallies and so forth in an effort to maintain support among what he literally calls his people. And that's also very troubling because another important essay of Arendt's was an essay she wrote called Truth in Politics, in which she describes what was at stake in the modern world. It was written after, of course, and as a response to the criticism that she received about uh, the Eichmann book. But she worries that politics is at war with factual truth, a factual truth uh, that uh, is, is endangered if it opposes a given group's profit or pleasure. And that kind of truth is greeted today with greater hostility than ever before, she writes. So in addition to this thoughtlessness, I think we need to pay attention to Trump's position, not just as president, but as his self-proclaimed leadership of, of a movement. Not that I would say it's a totalitarian movement, but it's definitely an effort to maintain strong support and, uh, and based on a kind of war against the facts, or what she called uh, you know, the, uh, the, the fragility with which factual truth is actually held in the world. And, and we see this when there's repeated and frequent, just yesterday again, Um, attacks on the press and attacks on facts that are distributed by journalistic means as nothing more than opinions.
2: Right. Well, actually on this particular day, he has attacked Miko Brzezinski of MSNBC and one of the more more bizarre... uh, I mean, even within his reality, it's one of the strangest things I've ever seen him do, suggesting that that she appeared before him bleeding from a facelift. Um, So... um, Uh, But I want to go, Roger, I want to go build on what... Kathy is saying about this notion of the leader, as Arendt understands, the dangerous re- leader, the strong man. So you get this atomized world where the social bonds are not strong, and then the strong leader comes along, basically with an ideology that purports to explain everything, right? Everything has to fit under the umbrella uh, of whatever this person is, is holding out, and anything that doesn't is delegitimized, right?
1: Uh, Well, that's to a certain extent how she describes uh, totalitarian leaders like uh, Hitler and Himmler uh, in in Germany and and Stalin in in Russia or Soviet Union. Um, You know, I I think George said it earlier, and I agree with that, is that, you know, it's not clear to me that Donald Trump um, is an ideological thinker uh, and that he has a a strong ideology, uh, except for maybe the ideology of winning, Mm. um, which, you know, is an interesting, which is a kind of, will to power, uh, if you want to think in, in those terms. Um, uh, and so it's, it's not at all, you know, I, I don't, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's helpful to analogize Trump either to someone like Eichmann or to someone like Hitler or Stalin. Um, uh, and yet there, you know, obviously there are similarities in the sense, and to the extent that he is, um, a self-proclaimed, as he calls it, mouthpiece or leader of a movement. Um, and, and 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 he is and i think Kathy is 100% right here his his great talent is not in, in expressing an ideology it's in defactualizing the world and that's the that's the talent that aren't uh, ascribed to the totalitarian leaders um, uh, during during the mid 20th century what they were skilled at and brilliant at was purposely um, defactualizing and showing how any fact could be turned around and and made to serve um, their purpose and Trump is a master at that I mean we have you have to give him some credit not that it's a good credit but he's a he's a brilliant PR person brilliant uh, demagogue of sorts and um, and 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 he is incredibly skilled at uh, taking facts and turning them and twisting them such that uh, People, it's not that people don't believe what's real, uh, per se, but that they question reality as such. They question authority, and, and they question that there's any any real uh, certain factuality that one sh- that one should hold on. And once you once you put reality into question, once you you, you make reality or the world wobble, as Honor Honorant puts it at times, um, then. It becomes a matter of power. Then it becomes about interest, and people say, "Well, as long as the world is wobbling, I'd rather it wobble in my direction rather than the other direction." Um, so, you know, I I I think that uh, he is a very skilled leader of a movement whose great talent is really in destabilizing. Both, you know, the the problem, I mean, you know, is that whereas Hitler and 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 Stalin and and, and Himmler had a had a had an ideology that directed where they wanted things to wobble towards, if you want to put it in those terms, it's not at all clear to me that Trump has that kind of direction. Um, and that's, on the one hand, I guess maybe a good sign in the sense that uh, he's not actually successfully uh, leading us anywhere. It seems like he's sort of more stymied. And it's also a bad sign in the sense that it's just utter cynicism. All it's doing is, is creating this sense of, um, of, of complete uh, cynicism – uh, um amongst both sides, um whereas everybody is turning, you know, and, and becoming a member of camps, the resistance camp and the other camp. And and, and there seems to be very little uh uh willingness to try and create a center that could hold in in, in somewhere.
2: Nonetheless, you have just described the life preserver to which I cling. What gets me out of bed every day is the idea. He has absolutely no idea where he's sailing this ship to. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more of these three guests and the stories and ideas of Hannah Arendt. All right. Uh, I'd like to spend a little bit of time in this segment talking about. I, I think there's sort of two primary controversies that that dog uh, the work of our end. They don't overshadow it or blot it out, but um, they get dragged around behind her. So uh, before I say what those are, let me say who the guests are: George Prochnik, writer, editor at large for Cabinet Magazine, author of many books, including Stranger in a Strange Land, Searching for Gershom, Sholem, and Jerusalem, a New York Times Editor's Choice. Roger Berkowitz, founder, academic. Director, director of the Hannah Arendt Center, an associate professor of politics, uh, philosophy, and human rights at Bard College, author of Thinking in Dark Times, Hannah Arendt on Ethics and Politics, Kathleen Jones, professor emerita at San Diego University, and the author of books including Diving for Pearls, A Thinking Journey with Hannah Arendt. Uh, She directs an NEH summer seminar uh, on Hannah Arendt for school teachers. So um, actually, before I even say anything, let's hear the aforementioned Barbara Sakawa as Hannah Arendt uh, in Margaret uh, von Trottis 2012 film about her uh, talking, uh, at least glancingly, if not directly, about one of these controversies.
3: I am, of course, as you know, a Jew. And I've been attacked for being a self hating Jew who defends Nazis and scorns her own people. This is not an argument. That is a character assassination. I wrote no defense of Eichmann. But I did try to reconcile the shocking mediocrity of the man with his staggering deeds. Trying to understand is not the same as forgiveness. I see it as my responsibility to understand. It is the responsibility of anyone who dares to put pen to paper on this subject.
2: All right. Well, maybe a little cinematic drama there, but but not that much actually. Um, so, uh, Kathy Jones, let's start with um, banality of evil. So, if people don't know anything about Hannah Arendt, the thing that they're most likely to know is are those three words. They may not entirely understand. In fact, they don't probably understand exactly how to apply them uh, to what Arendt was looking at. But but even those who maybe gave her a pretty close reading. Um, had some trouble or had some disagreements with what she meant by that term. So how do you process it? How do you explain it in in workshops or anywhere else?
3: Well, you're absolutely right. People frequently misunderstand the one thing that they know about Hannah Arendt and uh, dismiss her effectively for those three words. And the part Part of the problem is the juxtaposition in the phrase of banality with evil. But Arendt, by the time she'd written the Eichmann book or was in the process of writing the Eichmann book after attending the trial and re- uh, for a period of time and reading uh, the transcripts and many, many other documents that went into her writing of this uh, series of articles in The New Yorker that ultimately became the book, had shifted from what she had originally conceptualized as a kind of evil in the satanical sense of the term, uh, a radical evil that goes down to the roots of, uh, uh, of existence, and defined evil, not the horror that occurred. That was not what those three words referred to. She never never swayed her opinion that that this was an unprecedented and and horrific crime against humanity but that the perpetrators who had committed these crimes eichmann among them were uh, neither perverted nor sadistic she wrote they were and still were at the time of her writing terribly and terrifyingly normal so that her understanding of evil had shifted from this radical contextualization of it to the notion of evil as a surface phenomenon that spreads across the earth like a virus, she wrote in a letter to uh, to shalem and and what she meant by this was that um, it was it was a much more uh, common phenomenon that could s- could settle across the world relatively quickly, precisely because it had no depth to it. Good had depth, evil had no de- had no depth, it, and it was a phrase that appeared only twice, one might say, in the book, in the actual text at the very end, and on the front cover as uh, the subtitle, A Report on the Banality of Evil. It was not meant to imply that the acts that had been perpetrated were banal, commonplace, ordinary, but that they could be perpetrated by he, people who were not monsters, but who were terribly and terrifyingly normal. And that's what shocked her. She didn't go into the trial expecting this. I think in many ways she went into the trial as she wrote uh, to, uh, I, f- I forget exactly to whom she wrote this, but um, she she went because she wanted to see these people in the flesh, flesh and she hadn't had the opportunity uh, to attend the Nuremberg trials. And she, I think, expected something very different from what she experienced and what she continued to think about as she was combing through the documents uh, that she took back to New York with her to write the book.
2: So George yes, yeah, she's looking at, uh, at this one man, she's looking at this phenomenon, and of course the Nazis themselves, one reason she's not expecting it is the Nazis themselves were great mythologizers of their evil, their iconography, their swastikas and their death heads and uh, the Albert Speer proportions of, uh, you know, uh, of everything that they did, and then she's looking at this guy and he's kind of a big nothing and and the i think one of the knife's edge edges that she's running her thumb down is this notion that yes it's a virus it's a fungus it's about as interesting as that and and it, it it rules from within it colonizes the insides of people's minds but then the next question is george so is that like invasion of the body snatchers where the these you know alien spores just kind of get in you and run you or don't you or do you still have some responsibility for what you did and that might be one of the areas where, where she gets misunderstood.
4: Well, um, I, I think certainly that one of the points that Gershom Sholem took issue with was the, oh, per, the the weight that Hannah Arendt put on bureaucracy relative to the ways that bureaucracy could tap into quite deep human passions. Um Scholem was focused in part on the sheer pleasure that he felt from what he had read about not just Eichmann, but about his his henchmen, uh, came with the enactment of, of Nazi policy. These passions were deep, he felt. He felt that they, in fact, overlapped into different forms of self-deification. And this concerned Scholem in particular, partly because I think he was reading evil through his studies of of the Kabbalah and his ideas of radical evil certainly were were influenced by that. But I've but I've also found myself in in this time thinking about um what it means to have a system, and he would never have denied the the efficacy of the uh, of the of the fascist slash Nazi system at at unleashing something, but what it means to have a system that that actually doesn't doesn't invade doesn't invade you with something that didn't exist before but lets out something very very deep at least in, in a freudian sense you know we i think freud is relevant in different ways because R- roger is is completely correct talking about the defactualization that uh, this regime has excelled at but it's also maybe or maybe another lens on what that defactualization consists in is to think about it in terms of freudian wish fulfillment the infantile wish fulfillment i mean this idea that there are these different forms of taboos and guilts that are imposed by society that are, are, exist in the unconscious that are quite deep, that uh, dreams are supposed to resolve. And we seem to have entered a kind of era of dream politics. There's 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 something where, I mean, I, I, I know for myself and I think for many people that I speak to, there's an idea at times of having passed through the looking glass, where language that is language of collusion that is used to describe, for example, a potential um, collaboration on the part of this administration with the Russians is then flipped around and it was the previous administration that was collaborating there's something, there's something dreamlike about this and there's something then perhaps quite deep in our psych- psychic architectures that's, that's being channeled here
2: um, Roger Berkowitz, we're on a very complicated terrain here, and there's hours of stuff to say and actually minutes in which to say it. But I mean, I think we at least have to touch on the other half of this controversy. So she gets, she takes a great hammering over this banality of evil, usually by people who don't really quite understand the point that she's making. She also takes a great hammering over the assertion, anyway, that she assigns too much responsibility to, to Jewish leadership councils in, in particular, that, that somehow or other she's not giving them a pass on this how do you how do you interpret that
1: yeah i mean so there are there are two large controversies around her book or more than that but two that have sort of lasted um and the second one is the one you just mentioned that she uh uh assigns she doesn't assign responsibility uh um, uh, or culpability uh, to to the Jewish leaders, but as first for those of your your listeners who might not know, uh, one of the ways that Eichmann and the Nazis worked is that they would go into a Jewish community and um, either uh, and ask for them to select a series of leaders uh, who would then, in a sense sense, assist the the Nazis with the uh, job of of rounding up uh, choosing Jews for for first to the de- to the camps and then also in the camps um, Jews uh, could work as Kapos um, and and get special benefits um, uh, for doing um, some very uh, awful work um, and you know what she says um, is that uh, we can never judge these people we, you know we weren't there and the situation they were in was awful um, but you uh, and and she doesn't in any way say that they're responsible uh, for it. So to say that I think is is simply uh, um, uh, oh, well, speak falsely. But what she does say is that um, uh, many of them um, had a choice to make, and in her view, um, some made better choices than others. Uh, and the ones that she holds out as the ones that in her that she thinks made the best moral choices were the ones who, in a sense, either joined a resistance and fought back, or who committed suicide, um, and she thinks that in that situation, that was the most moral uh, uh, act some of them could make. That doesn't mean she um, holds others who cooperated um, responsible uh, for, uh, for what happened, but she does think they cooperated, and we have to ask ourselves, why? Why? Um, And how is it that um, a religious, moral people could be completely um, laid so low by what happened in in, in the Holocaust that they would um, turn to cooperation to keep themselves alive uh, and give up names and and help bring people to to the death camps or even to their extermination? And she thought that was a, a moral question that needed to be asked.
2: Um, we're go- we're gonna, I need to just pause you right here because we're going to have no time for the rest of this. And right now, what I'm going to do also is uh, we're going to take a break. I'm going to thank uh, Kathleen Jones. Uh, I'm going to urge you to seek out her book, Diving for Pearls, A Thinking Journey with Hannah Arendt. Uh, when we come back, Melissa Friedman will be joining us for a conversation about incarnating this incredibly complicated woman, this thinker we've been talking about today.
3: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. With help from me, Kyone Wolf, our intern is Carmen Baskoff, and our executive producer is Katie Tularski.
2: The part of Bill Curry was played by Martin Heidegger. On tomorrow's show, The Nose, our pop culture roundtable, looks back at the week in news. And now back to Colin. And we are going to explore uh, the nature of that man who was just mentioned, uh, Martin Heidegger. Uh, We have our guests Roger Berkowitz and George Proshnik still with us, but joining us now Melissa Friedman. Uh, She uh, played Hannah Arendt uh, in an off-Broadway production of Kate Fodor's Hannah and Martin. She's the co-founder and artistic director of Epic Theater Ensemble in in New York. So, um, Melissa, first of all, this is uh, something that we haven't talked about, although we've been talking for a long time now about Hannah Arendt, but we haven't talked about the relationship with Heidegger, which starts when she is very young. And I I think it's a reasonably fair thing to say that in its early stages, anyway, it's a romantic relationship between uh, this kind of towering philosopher who's later, at least for a while, going to align himself with the Nazis and, and this younger woman. I think she's she's quite a bit younger, right? Yeah,
0: she's she's eighteen. She's very young. Mm-hmm.
2: And and I don't know. As you uh, probed that, I mean, obviously she's she is later going to emerge as. You know, one of the preeminent critics of uh, critics is the wrong word, but 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 explainers right. uh, of the, all the tragedies, occasions occasioned by Nazism. But initially, what draws them to one another? Did you, did you develop a theory or did your playwright develop a theory about this?
0: I think both. You know, the playwright definitely did, but I, I did as well. I think, you know, it was a meeting of the minds. I think she was really enamored of his intellect and he was a powerful celebrity in her world. Um, and her mentor and that powerful relationship, you know, which isn't a equal status, but I think she was really spellbound by, by his intellect and, um, and feeling understood and feeling challenged by him. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it's swept up in the romance where she's so young. So she is very much swept up in in the power of, of, of that romance.
2: Um, I also just want to say, and I'm going to also give uh, George and Roger a chance to weigh in, but wh- who did she become to you? Th- this is a person who—I mean, movies and plays do get made about this person. I don't know. Right. When I was in college, probably more people were reading Ernest Becker than yeah. were reading uh, Hannah Arendt, but uh, there aren't going to be any plays about Ernest Becker or movies or anything yeah. like that. What, what is it mm-hmm. about her?
0: Well, at the time, there weren't really movies and plays about her that I had heard of. I mean, there might be. I'm certainly right. not— you know, 100% certain. But it, this was 2004 when I first started working on it, and even earlier when I first started workshopping the play. Um, and I think that uh, you know, it's her words and her thinking that drew me to her. But then the complication of some of the words and thinking being at odds with this romance and this relationship with with Martin Heidegger was really interesting. I think in theater, in drama, there is always an interest for me as a theater artist, in contradictions. Uh, the, the idea that you say one thing and you feel another and those things in conflict with each other is really interesting because they're incredibly human. And we love to see those things and grapple with those things on stage. As, as an artist, I'm fascinated by that, and I was drawn to her fierceness in her intellect and also her personal struggle that lived with it within that.
2: Um, George, I'm going to just turn to you for a second here. We're we're short on time here, but having uh, also scrutinized her very differently through a different set of letters involving a very different kind of relationship, who's the person who emerged? I mean, it, just in a few words, who is the person that Hannah Arendt is to you?
4: Well, she has remarkable and uh, intensely alluring independence of mind. She she projects a confidence. A willingness to be wrong and get up and try another idea. She comes at her different uh, political, philosophical positions from so many different angles, with with such bravura grace, really, and, and an ability to. I mean, I think it was Kathy mentioned early on this idea of her as a storyteller. I mean, we, we sense that even when what she's doing is not telling a traditional st- story but interpreting a political idea, she has something she has something magnetic that is certainly has to do with the way we don't feel that she is owned by any particular ideology
2: Um, Roger, uh, as you would probably know better than any of us, one of the reasons we know about this particular relationship, Heidegger and Arendt, know as much as we do is I think in the mid 90s, a whole bunch of letters basically got out of some archives and got into some people's hands. And and so one of the things that we now know is that despite his and it certainly was more than just a flirtation with Nazism, it was a full on engagement with Nazism, which he later privately uh, said that he regretted and repudiated despite all that. She, they, they remain in contact pretty much for their whole lives. Uh, what's your explanation of that?
1: Well, they, they don't remain in contact their whole lives. I mean, she, she leaves uh, Germany in in 1933, right? So this mm-hmm. is you know right at the beginning of uh, really the rise of, of Nazism in Germany. She's arrested for doing work uh, with a Zionist organization, and she escapes. And gets to Paris, and she works with the uh, youth of Leah, bringing Jewish children to, to Israel, and then um, uh, does work, uh, intellectual work, and also work with the resistance in Paris, and then is put in a concentration, uh, a detention camp, Gore's detention camp, and then escapes and makes her way to the United States in 1940. Um, she doesn't talk to Heidegger uh, again uh, until 1949. Um, when she's uh, in Europe as the world representative of jewelry, actually with Gershom Sholem. That's mm-hmm. when she and Sholem really, for the first time, get to spend some actual time together. They had been friends based on their uh, friendship with Walter Benjamin. But um, she works with Sholem to, to, to figure out What's going to happen to all the Jewish artifacts that had been collected and by the Nazis as a museum for dead cultures and other things? But
2: she and she and Heidegger do continue to write and, after and that, right?
1: And then she meets; she makes a decision to meet Heidegger uh, while she's there at the end of 1949, and and they they meet and uh, they have uh, uh, and they they decide. Is there's some fascinating letters written about this relationship. I can't go into it right now, but uh, it, she had she had written a piece in the 1940s uh, condemning Heidegger um, and saying that he was someone that you know had to be read with great care and was dangerous, and she repudiates that piece and comes, as you say, to uh, to, to create a, a lifelong um, uh, friendship with him.
2: And, uh, Roger, we are going to have to stop okay. it right there. Roger Brookowitz, thanks so much. I was hoping to get back to you, Melissa Friedman. We'll have to talk another time uh, about how they patched this thing up. It's a big thing to patch up, after all. All right. Uh, thanks to everybody who helped out, especially to Betsy Kaplan. We'll be back tomorrow with the Nose.
3: <laughs>